Well, good morning, everybody. This is Kevin Stevenson, and you're on I Don't Care with me. And uh, we have a, a really uh, interesting show for you today. Uh, with me today is Bob Page and Tammy Peterman. And Bob is the president and CEO of the University of Kansas Health System. And Tammy is executive vice president, COO, and chief nursing officer at the uh, system. And she's also president of their Kansas City division. So Bob, Tammy, welcome. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks, Kevin. Well, uh, as we were talking a little bit earlier, I'm on a bit of a run of, uh, of uh, having the opportunity to interview authors uh, on a wide variety of topics within healthcare. And yours is a topic that I really enjoy, uh, healthcare transformation. And so your book, obviously, I love your studio, uh, Proud But Never Satisfied. Uh, that's, a, that's a great mantra for all of us healthcare leaders. And so uh, would love to talk a little bit about what, uh, what precipitated your, your writing this book together. So just tell, tell my audience, where was the University of Kansas Health System back, uh, let's say around 1997? Yeah, Kevin, I'll take that. Thank you for inviting us tonight. Let me let me just first say to refer to us as authors is kind of a unique title because I don't think we ever thought we'd do this and we probably won't ever do it again either. So, <laughs> but having said that, I'll take you back to the, the mid nineties. You know, we were founded in 1906. So for the first 92 years of our existence, we were governed and managed by the University of Kansas. We had some really good years, some really bad years. And then by mid nineties, things got really rough. So in a, in a nutshell, we had the worst patient satisfaction in the country. We didn't know quality, but for those of us who have been around a long time, nobody really knew quality back in the 90s. We all talked about it. We were turning over a third of our workforce on an annual basis. And when we surveyed our employees and asked their opinions in the employee engagement survey, the three lowest rated questions from our 2200 staff, would you recommend the hospital as a place to work? Would you recommend the hospital as a place to receive care? And are you proud to work? at the University of Kansas Hospital. Those were the three lowest rated questions. Wow. And then, so the good news was the market was growing in Kansas City. So that was the good news. The bad mm -hmm. news was it was growing everywhere but here. So we were losing 5% volume per year, bottomed out about 13,000 discharges in 98. 500 bed hospital, 13,000 discharges. You do the math. If we had 140 patients in beds, we thought we were busy until we realized we had 360 empty beds and we had more medical students than we had patients. And on top of all of that, we had no money because for the first 92 years of our existence, every dollar the hospital made went back to the university. So we didn't keep any of those earnings. And so that was really the, uh, the auspicious beginning for this place. We brought a consulting group in. They, they spent a, a, about a year and a half with us and came back and gave us two really important pieces of their report. One was, if you don't fix the mess you're in, you're gonna lose $20 million a year by the year 2000. Mm -hmm. And that report was published in 1997. Hmm. And they gave us six recommendations to consider. One was to sell the hospital and one was to close the hospital. So 22 years ago, we were having serious conversations on our campus about those options. The good news was we had some really bright and courageous people that were visionaries. And they said, let's try another option they offered which was a public authority and that's what we did. So yeah. that, and, and we can talk about it, that at some point, but that that gave us the launching pad, if you will, to kind of do what we'd, we've been able to do since 98. Boy, that's a real similar story to what I heard about 20 years ago from Quint Studer at Baptist in Pensacola. Uh, kind of the same thing, bottom of the market there, one of the lowest patient satisfaction scores in the country. And so 
you know, many of us certainly know Quint well and know what, what he was able to uh, accomplish there and then uh, uh, his uh, post-hospital life. Uh, and so would love to hear, you know, what, how did you start this journey? I think that's a great question. And you mentioned that you know Quint, we know Quint a, a little bit as well. And we had the opportunity actually to work with him very early on because yeah. one of the things that we did kind of out of the gates, if you will, was focus on, on patient satisfaction. We actually have a formula that we will talk a little bit about, which is we didn't have it on, a, on a, a slide or on a piece of paper at that time early on, but it's really the way we've done this, this work and certainly the way the transformation has occurred. It's really been a focus on the patient from a service perspective, patient satisfaction, from a quality perspective, making sure we have the right people. So we believe if you have those three metrics, right. now we know the most important aspect of any organization, I believe, is the group of people that comes to work every single day mm -hmm. to do their work. If you're, they're supported in the best and right way, you can accomplish anything. And we believe if those three metrics, service, quality, and people are strong and supported, that the growth and sustainability will follow. We've never flipped that formula. We've always stayed true to that formula during a pandemic, during economic challenge times. Mm -hmm. That's where we've stayed, stayed true. But we started with patient satisfaction. We didn't start with growth. We didn't start with finance. Even though we had no money, we didn't have patients. We started with patient satisfaction and really a bit about the culture because mm -hmm. we knew we had to transform the culture, but we were starting that work with patient satisfaction. And I think that has proven to be really successful for us. You know, we were at the fifth percentile. We, we've now, you know, the last number of years, we've been in that top decile performance. It took us a long time to get there. We had to be patient. We had to celebrate small incremental changes as we as we went on that journey. But that's where we focused. And we've spent a lot of time training our staff. We said early on, mm -hmm. we have to make sure we train our staff. So we have, you know, an eight-hour customer service training for all new employees. And the executives went through 16 hours. I don't know what that says. <laughs> <laughs> Takes us a little bit longer to get yeah. things, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. The staff have gone through eight hours and they still do that. And we still have essentially a very similar patient satisfaction or customer service training class. We could talk a lot about patient satisfaction, but you probably have some other questions you'd like to get to as well. Well, you know, actually, uh, thanks for the segue because I really want to know, you know, let's get down in the, in the weeds because, you know, I know how difficult it is to turn around an organization that is experiencing the, the difficulties that yours did back then. So how did you get em, employee engagement, employee buy-in early on? Yeah, it's a great question, Kevin. And part of it was, <clears throat> there was a lot of, I, I showed up in 1996, there was a lot of anecdote, and an, I would call it anecdotal performance improvement going on. Somebody said something and it became the focus of performance improvement. Mm -hmm. And, and we, were, we were really kind of data poor here. So we had, we, had, we had data sources, but nobody was ever pulling it together to make it actionable data. In fact, on the patient sat side, we, we were back with Prescani. We get the quarterly reports. By the time we dive into them and figure it out, it was six months old. So exactly. we basically threw it, we threw it away and we said, well, hopefully it's better next time. Right. So it wasn't really until we started to get meaningful data in front of people. And, and the focus was on timeliness, 
accuracy of the data and transparency. Mm -hmm. So, and it was not about, we've got this saying, you know, be hard on systems and, and not on people. And so the, the real issue here was not to blame people, but to rather you can't hold people accountable until first you train them. And second, you show them the information. And then you figure out where you want to get. And so that's what we did. And then we started with patient satisfaction. I remember when I was a chief operating officer, people told me, said, Bob, you got to fix two things. You got to fix food and parking and everything will be fine. <laughs> and so then you look at the, you look at the data, you look at the correlation coefficient on the inpatient side, the number one item correlated to overall patient satisfaction was satisfaction with nursing. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until one day we, I stood up in front of our leadership team and said, from this moment forward, nursing owns patient satisfaction. And now that was, that was kind of an interesting comment to make because people who weren't nursing were kind of offended. They sure. thought, well, wait a minute, I, I take care of patients. But there was no question that that was the direct correlation. And then Tammy and I would meet with our, our nursing leaders and, and we, had it, we had four hours of time blocked every Friday, mm -hmm. 15 minute increments. And we meet with every department the nursing director, the nursing manager, when they were below target. And it was not punitive. We had read all the satisfaction surveys and we were just listening and trying to figure out how to best help and support everybody. And you knew progress was, made, was being made when you went from you know, four straight hours of meetings to two hours of meetings to an hour and a half of meetings to no more meetings. Right. And, then, and, and so you could just see that happen. But I, I'm a CPA by background. And what I know is that the people who go into healthcare don't go into it because they want to take a dollar out of a stay or they want to grow, you know, 3% market share. People go into healthcare because they want to make people better and they want to feel good about doing everything they can to help a patient through a difficult time. And so there's nothing better than getting people motivated by let's see how we're satisfying our patients. And that worked really well for us. Sure. And, and that's, Number one, you've affirmed something that I do on a biweekly basis. I do the very same thing as far as meet with, uh, with our nursing leadership and some of our ancillary services. So uh, thanks for making me feel good. Uh, but, uh, yeah, and I know in other organizations that I've been in, we, we've taken a very similar approach to where, yeah, we want to make sure that, that we focused first on our associates. Uh, we found that associate engagement, much like you, uh, really led to uh, better engaged and, and, and happier physicians who then in turn led to happier patients. And so, you know, uh, I, I firmly believe in what, uh, in, in that same, uh, that same uh, mindset that y'all did. So, uh, so what about, you know, how did you engage your medical staff? I know you're a medical school uh, and I, I hope I'm right in that regard. Um, so how did you engage the physicians in this? I think that's a really good, good question. And, and very early on, we had medical director, hospital director partnerships. And what we know is that great work takes place. I believe it takes place in any healthcare organization. But what we knew at our place was that it would be better and stronger and more successful if we partnered a medical staff member with oftentimes a nurse, it might be a pharmacist, it might be someone else. But I think that was that was maybe one of the first steps to engagement was we, we brought them into the process. And whether it was improving or developing a, a response team, or it was working on sepsis, or it was mm -hmm. any of a number of other things, if physicians are engaged and they're, they're partnered and they're part of the team, they're, they will help you get farther faster than, than anything. And I, I, I believe that. I also know that 
the relationship with nursing was is really important to mm -hmm. physicians. And our physicians are really proud of our nurses. I, I know that because they 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 certainly deliver high quality care, but they're true partners with, with our medical staff. And mm -hmm. we are we just recently received our physician engagement survey information as some of the highest rated questions from the physicians were related to the relationship with nursing. And I think that speaks highly of, of the partnering that takes place. And in the same way, when we survey nurses, they appreciate that relationship mm -hmm. with, with the physicians. So I think, I think it's getting them involved in what's important to them. That was really important to us. We started with just a handful of medical director partnerships and we went up to, I think, 90 some medical director partnerships. And, and now we've transitioned those. They've evolved a little bit to kind of some other, other partnership models, but I think it's really getting them engaged in what's important to them and then supporting them and supporting them with data. And we can still do better with that. We hear that from our physician partners now. They just need more information. If we want to continue to improve, they need the data. You okay. know, Kevin, it, it's, it's interesting, Kevin. The one thing that I think differentiates us is we didn't start with the docs because back in, back in the 90s, <clears throat> the docs were in their own separate corporations. So every department was its own 501c3. So Tammy and I had these conversations early on and we said, well, we could try to go crack that nut. But instead, what we said was, well, let's get people, let's attract people to what we're doing. So we knew, we knew the workforce that we owned. So we started with the hospital workforce and we started with nursing and everybody else. And we, as we started to see momentum, physicians started to want to get even more engaged with, okay, what's happening over there? That's really interesting. And so it, it, we, we are not one of those organizations that starts everything with the physicians. Okay. So, so in this, in this massive transition of your culture, uh, you mentioned earlier transitioning from a, a state entity to a public authority. Talk to talk to me about how that how that came about, because I mean, obviously you're having to balance the politics about the business side, the the clinical aspects. I can't imagine what that was like. I'd love to hear about that. Yeah, it's pretty interesting when you go back to that time. Tammy and I laugh about this all the time now because October 1st, 1998, 12.01 in the morning, we became a public authority. We got $23 million of seed money, which was about 30 days cash. Hmm. And, and that, that's where we started. And so, but, but we both have these memories of we had no HR department. We had no materials management department. We had a, a workforce that was used to working in a state environment that was compensated based on state wages. And we had 33% turnover. I mean, you could just see all of these things kind of coming together and going, okay, we got some work to do here. But what we knew is we had this incredibly um, committed group of folks who just needed some light at the end of the tunnel. And so for us, it was really about how do we just roll up our sleeves and build this infrastructure for these folks? And so, I mean, here, Tammy is a, an incredibly talented nurse, and, and here she was writing job descriptions to help our HR department get off the ground, mm -hmm. right? I mean, it was that kind of, we're sending taxis around town to go get materials management supplies. But, but what happened for us was, it was really a, a situation where visionary leaders went to the state government and said, look, there's only two ways this, this, this place is going to survive. One, we're going to need a lot more state funding, and that wasn't going to be possible. Or you're going to have to set the hospital free and see how it does. Mm -hmm. And so they set us free. They gave us our seed money. We got our own board of directors for the first time. Don't have any reporting relationship to the university. And we were kind of patted on the back of the head and said, good luck. Don't call us. We'll call you. 
but you could just see the momentum start when we finally got to get some freedom and not have to work within the confines of all the bureaucracy within a state system. Hmm. Okay, so so you, did I hear you correctly? You had about a 33% turnover rate? Yes. That's right. Wow. Yeah, so, so I, I would imagine how difficult it was without having an HR department trying to replace all of those people. Uh, <laughs> Right. So, Recruitment and, and retention, yeah. both were important. And, and we didn't have the infrastructure. We started to build the infrastructure, of course, but that takes a while when you think mm -hmm. about it. It's everything from how do you, how do you get a PTO plan in place and what do you do for, for performance management? And it was, it was quite interesting. And, and actually all of us, all of the individuals who were part of that process have some pretty remarkable stories, I think, that probably didn't, they didn't all make the, make the book. But you just, we look back on it now and go, wow, I can't believe we even did it. And how were we so successful? How did we become so successful as an organization when we started with really nothing? And I think it was because there was a, there was a great vision. You know, mm -hmm. there was, we had uh, a CEO at the time who had, had this wonderful vision and, and we were supporting that. And I think it was, it was the engagement of the workforce and then a focus on patients. And we had a pretty good story. You know, we, we went to the bond markets early on because we mm -hmm. didn't have any money and we only had a story. We didn't have results yet, but we had people who believed in us. And then when we went back um, years later, we had the story because sure. we started to see some some progress and some certainly some improvement in our in our performance. Yeah, that you know, obviously you had those people who were passionate about the calling of healthcare in the beginning, who you know were able to convey that uh, the, your your early story, if you will. So, you know, I, I'm looking at it from the standpoint, yeah, I'm sure that was difficult without that amount of turnover, but in, a, in effect, that was probably, you know, good for you because you were able to bring people in and you were able to set the stage of the culture with them up front. We were, and in fact, <clears throat> two of the biggest transactions we made early on, one, uh, when we were under the university, our cancer program had been outsourced. Hmm. And so here we are as an academic medical center without a cancer program that we own. So the first thing we did was we brought the cancer program back. And the second thing was, which was really shocking to me, I had come from BJC Health System up in St. Louis. Mm -hmm. And I vividly remember sitting in a conference room one day. I don't know why I was in there. I, I guess I was a chief operating officer. I have no clinical skills at all. And here we are talking about taking a patient from our hospital, the academic hospital, and shipping them to a community hospital to have open heart surgery <laughs> because we don't have an open heart surgery program. And I, man, I didn't know what was going on. And so we brought over in one transaction, we created a cardiovascular department. Um, another hospital in town decided to put all their eggs in one basket. We were the beneficiary of that decision. And we brought about 23 or 24 docs mm -hmm. over overnight and created that. And so we could, once you started to give the vision to people and they could see the opportunity, the momentum, it was just, it just kept rolling downhill and it was kind of fun to be part of. Sure. I mean, success breeds success. And, yeah. and again, <clears throat> yeah, going back to that, that passionate leadership at the top, yeah, you know, associates are able to to buy in to your vision. So, so you know, the old adage of "don't sweat the small stuff." But where you were, you had to sweat the small stuff. So, how did you how did you really empower your employees to make change? You know, at the bedside or wherever w within the facility. 
It's a great question. And that's probably about a four hour session. So well, great. Try- we have 10 minutes, so <laughs> cut it short. <laughs> I know I will. Well, I think about how, how do we, did we empower our staff? There were a number of different things, but I also think you have to make sure they have the tools and the resources to do their job. You have to start by making sure they have what they need to do their job. And I think about some of the things we did early on. They didn't have everything they needed. Think Mm -hmm. about it. We didn't have a great materials management or a supply chain process built in place. So there were a number of things that just made it really hard for people to do their job. We decided that one day there were so many things that were coming up that we couldn't, we hadn't addressed for our frontline staff. We stood up what we called a solutions room. Mm-hmm. And it was staffed by leaders. And that solutions room was something just to support our staff. We said, try one time to get what you need. Call the person you're supposed to, the department you're supposed to, make one call. And if you don't get what you need, you call the solutions line and the solutions line will take it, would take it from there. Mm. So we did that and we learned a lot. Because what you realize is that if... 10 different departments have the same problem, you've got to fix the problem and you've got to fix the process to make sure that they have what they need. That was just one little thing that happened early on. And we staffed it 24 seven. It was staffed, you know, evening nights, weekends, and it was a leadership team that staffed the solutions line. So that's just one example of trying to make sure that people had what they needed in order to do their job. Of course, there are a lot of other ways that you can get the staff engaged, but you had to start with some basic things. You had to start by, and we had to make sure that we had enough people. It was hard early on and some with the turnover as high as it was, we didn't have enough people. We were using a lot of contract labor. Well, that's never, never the best for an organization. One of the first things we did back then and we were not in a position to need to do this right now, but early on, a lot of people were doing sign-on bonuses to get people to come to the organization. We said, we're not doing that. We said, we're doing retention bonuses to keep the people we have because we couldn't disenfranchise our staff by having people get money by coming into the organization who are brand new to the organization and this group had been loyal. So we, that was probably my first board meeting to, to attend was when I went and I said, here's what I'd like to do is to make sure that we put a retention plan in place for nursing. And, and we did that very early on, you know, 20 plus years ago. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so, and again, yeah, I love the fact that you had the nurses own patient, patient experience, patient satisfaction. I, I noticed the comment that you empowered all nurses to lead. So how did that happen? And, and, and how are you, how did you make that type of leadership just such an integral part of your culture? Sure. And then another great question. And it didn't happen overnight. Mm-hmm. It just didn't. One of the things we did early on was start on our magnet journey. And you might go, really? You started on a magnet journey. You had turnover like you did. Your patient mm-hmm. satisfaction was where it was. But what I knew and, and our team really knew was that if, if we could start on that journey, the concepts of magnet are just good. You know, it's about empowering nurses. It's about making sure they have the resources they need and it's acknowledging the outcomes are so important. It's involving them in decisions. There are a thousand reasons that it makes good sense. So we started on that journey very early on. And I remember telling our team early on, I don't know if we're going to apply 
I don't know if we'll get the prize, but we're starting on this journey and it will make us better as an organization and better as the as a group of professional nurses. And of course, as we continued on that journey and we built an infrastructure of um, our, our council structure so that nurses could have input into decision-making. And we started by having leaders lead those councils. And now, of course, they're led by our staff nurses and they have been for many years. But all of those things, I think, just made us um, a better, stronger department and profession of nursing within our organization. But we put a number of things in place to, to recognize the profession. We recognize professional certification. We recognize the importance of, of a number of other attributes of nursing. And we sometimes those were financial rewards. Sometimes were the, those were recognitions in a number of, uh, of other ways. And then as we marched on that journey, it became very clear that our team wanted that prize. So yeah. when we put our document together, we submitted in 2006, we became designated in 2006, the first Kansas-based hospital. Hmm. They wanted that prize a lot. And I knew that we would likely get it. Um, we've, we're now working on our fourth designation. So I think Magnet had a bit of a role in the transformation of, of nursing. Certainly you have to have great leaders. And I have always said, you can be, a, every nurse should be a leader. It doesn't take a title to be a leader. You can be a leader in education. You can be a leader in patient care. You can be a leader on your team. There are a lot of different ways to be a leader. It's not, it's not about your title. And I believe that's what we have at our place. This morning, I had the opportunity to be on a Zoom call with some of our new graduate nurses from last year. They have a residency, we have a residency program, which is we've had in place for many, many years. And they presented their projects that they did over the course of this last year. And that's really important. And they are so unbelievably articulate and professional, and I'm just wowed by the work that they do. But those were the kind of things that we put in place early on. And you sure. know, Kevin, I'll, I'll give you another perspective mm -hmm. to it because um, Tammy obviously can't say this, but I can. Uh, I remember when I first met Quint Studer, I was a new COO. I was walking the halls with Quint and Quint said, you know, Bob, if you want to really be successful as a hospital COO, get really close to nursing. Yeah. And so the first thing you do is you got to figure out who the right nursing leader is. And, and when I became CEO in 2000, one of the first things I did was ask Tammy if she would become the chief nursing officer in 2001. She had done an interim stint. She kind of had an okay time with that. And I, somehow she was gracious enough to say yes. But, but what, what she noticed when you walked the halls with Tammy was her connectivity to the nurses we had in our hospital. So it wasn't, a, it wasn't the ivory tower chief nurse who sits in the office and has no connectivity. She taught me how to go round on patients and she taught me how to round with staff. But I watched her interactions with those staff and it was kind of like, it, it was amazing to see what leadership did for that entire group of people. And so I, I, whoever's listening, I would clearly say, when it comes to nursing, it starts at the top. It starts with picking the right leader and make sure that person is very connected to the staff. Well, Bob, I would certainly echo that too. Uh, that was, I, I was given that same very wise advice early on in my career. And I, I've tried to hold to that uh, uh, throughout. So what kind of, what kind of podcast host would I be, you know, at this time in, in, uh, in history, if I didn't ask you about COVID? So, uh, you know, I, I, would, I feel remiss. So, so in your culture, how has your, how has your journey within your culture, how has that allowed you to be more nimble when the pandemic hit? 
Sure, and I think we all learned how to do that. Probably some were a little quicker quicker than others. I think because our culture was very well established, we had we had a team of people that truly came together as a team, and we were able to to move quickly through decision making. We were able to do things that I would have never thought, and it was because of the power of the team. I believe it was because of the teamwork that is just part of our culture. It's an expectation of all new employees when they come into our organization that they need to know we work as a team. You don't throw one another under the bus. You work in a respectful way. You communicate, you collaborate, and we work together as a team. Great things happen, but they don't happen because of one person or two. They happen because of a team. And I think it's because the the power of the team, I think, led us to be as as nimble as we were. I mean, we stood up our telehealth in a couple weeks. We thought it would take us two weeks before the pandemic or two, two years, we did it in, mm-hmm. in two weeks. And, and we did some things at our lab that I, we would, were still in awe of, of our lab team and the work that they've done. We use the studio in a way that we never thought we would have. We do, uh, our chief medical officer and one of our infectious um, infection, the medical director for infection prevention control, they do a daily show, our morning media update, and they've done it every day since the middle of March. And we now have billions of people who've, who've tuned into that. And Bob and I, early on, we did what we called a take 10, which is 10 minutes with leaders that we would send out to all of our staff every single day. So we were down here every single day. Now we do it three times a week. But I think those kind of things happened because we had this team and it it took everybody, it took the expertise of all the people around the table to figure that out. We have a great communications team. They, they were empowered to figure those things out. We have a great nursing team. We have a great lab team. When you look at our instant command, you can't tell whose title is, goes, belongs to which person because it's really about the entire team coming together. The other thing I would add to that, Kevin, is if you go back to the, the foundation of the culture, it's when you put the patient at the center of your decision making, you make really good decisions. And so, and then you take our formula and you say the number one, the, 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 the biggest piece of that formula is people. So now you've combined your staff and you've combined the patient and you can't think of, I mean, if you have those two as your focal point during a pandemic, you just can't go wrong yeah. because you're listening to your staff, you're listening to the patients, you're learning. I mean, we, we say here, we're always putting, the, what, what is it? We're putting the plane together as we fly it or something like that. I mean, we, we were learning by the moment, but again, if you're grounded in who it is you're making the decision, who's at the center of that decision and who's around you making those decisions, man, I'm telling you, it, it, the culture was already established to allow us to do that. If this would have been one of those top-down kind of places, I think we would have been in a lot of trouble trying to figure out how to work through the bureaucracy because that just isn't who we are. Sure. Wow. Uh, just, folks, I, I've got to tell you, this has been uh, an inspiring, uh, inspiring podcast for me, and it should be for all healthcare leaders to see, you know, what you, the kind of journey that you, the, the two of you and your entire team uh, went through over uh, these few decades to, to really transform uh, your system into, into one of the top systems in the country. So, you know, my hats are off to you. So uh, how about a final word, Bob? Uh, well, um, I hope everybody stays safe. I hope uh, if we can help in any way, we'd love to do that. We, you know, we always end our presentations by this is our story and we're sticking to it. And it, it may work for some people, it may not, but if anybody's interested, we're happy to help in any way we can. 
That's great. Thank you so much. Bob Page, Tammy Peterman, co-authors of Proud But Never Satisfied. Uh, that, that I love the title. All of us as healthcare leaders should, should aspire to that. So, well, viewers and listeners, it's uh, the end of a, yet another episode of I Don't Care with me, Kevin Stevenson. Uh, you know how to access us every Friday morning at 930 on marketscale.com. And then soon thereafter, we're dropped on Spotify and iTunes. And I'll close this podcast like I close all of them. If you haven't subscribed yet, I don't know why you haven't. So with that, I'm Kevin Stevenson. We'll talk again next week. Thanks. Thanks.